Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Investor Podcast, where every week we are interviewing outstanding individuals in the world of commercial real estate. This week, I am selfishly excited to have this conversation. One, it's with Dylan, who's been a good buddy of mine for a few years now in the realm of, of real estate. Uh, but two, he recently raised a $9 million fund, which is something that I've been interested in uh, pursuing uh, for a little while now because... Once you have a fund, you can go buy properties. You don't have to raise on an individual basis. So I'm excited to hear how he did that, why they did, decided to go that route, um, and you know how, uh, how we may be able to do that as well. Uh, Dylan is the principal of the Requity Group, which he founded, I want to say, in the last year, mm -hmm. give or take. Yep. Um, he's been in multifamily for over six years. He's been involved in tens of millions of transactions and uh, as a sponsor or a JV. Really excited to see, uh, again... Uh, I guess really excited to see you again. We actually had a conversation earlier today. Uh, Dylan, what is going on, man? How's Florida doing for you? I'm excited to be here. I, it's great that we did a back-to-back -back podcast show. So uh, it's excited for the next uh, for the next chapter of ours. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Dude, I didn't realize that you got your CCIM last year. Congrats on that. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, I was happy about that. I actually started that probably five years ago. So it was good to finally bring it full cycle I had to eventually get up to the experience requirement. <laughs> yeah, that's about where, uh, that's probably about when I started. I finally took my last class back in March or April. So hopefully going for my designation this fall. But it, it takes a while. It's, I mean, one, you've got the, you know, of course, you got to get the experience to, to be able to get the designation. But also, I mean, when do you find time to just leave for four days in the middle mm -hmm. of the week? That's the toughest part for me. I mean, it's eight to five, uh, you know, during the week. It's a lot of coffee. Yeah, it definitely is a great networking experience. I was happy to do the program, and I definitely encourage a lot of investors to do it. But like you said, it's easier when you're earlier on. You might have the time, but then once you have the experience, you don't have the time to, to take the class. So, yeah, that's exactly it. Well, so for everybody that's joining us live, feel free to drop your questions in the live chat as we go along, whether that's about multifamily, raising a fund, commercial real estate in general, it doesn't matter. Uh, Dylan and I will be happy to answer those questions for y'all. But Dylan, I gave obviously just a, a very brief introduction on, on you and your background, but can you kind of tell us you know, where you got started in real estate? Yeah, so I grew up in upstate New York and I always had the dreams of at that point, when I was a young kid, going to work on Wall Street and go the whole sort of corporate route, um, that, that's what I was exposed to at a young age. And when I went off to school, I had one of those wake-up calls after my sophomore year in college where I was starting to brainwash myself with personal development and entrepreneurship books and formed the belief that I was able to create a life on my own terms by using real estate or different uh, you know, forms of entrepreneurship, as I think many young people eventually, they have that sort of moment, or I guess people in general have that moment at some at various points in their life. Um, but for me at about 19, it all took a big turn where I said, well, instead of spending my time partying and, and you know finishing up school, I'm gonna, I'm gonna really go full force into learning everything I can about real estate, sales, entrepreneurship, things along those lines. Um, I bought a one-way ticket to sunny San Diego with the goal of creating this lifestyle by design, got my foot in the door at a real estate investing and education company, started off in sales, grew into a sales manager role, saved up all of the commission money I could to go and buy my first single family rental, soon to be a duplex and 
and started to grow a portfolio investing in turnkey properties and eventually uh, learned about multifamily, multifamily syndication. And at that point, there was no looking back after having a conversation with several investors that had several hundred million in real estate. I, I really had that light bulb moment where I said, this is a vehicle that I could really see myself, you know, playing a part in for the rest of my life. I, I had that moment where I really saw this as being a platform that there's going to be enough intellectual stimulation back with enough excitement and enough flexibility uh, to to meet a lot of the goals that, um, and, and I think that, that fit my personality type to to grow in long-term. Um, and it's worked out to be that thus far. It, it uh, you know, I thought I would be doing apartments forever, frankly. So I got started in the apartment space, spent about four years there, worked on probably 60 or 70 million in uh, total apartment deals through value add uh, multifamily syndications, working with investor capital and doing a couple of JVs, like you mentioned. Uh, and actually, after having a little bit of a dry spell in the apartment space and also just sort of a an epiphany as to the value in mobile home communities, I really made a bit of a pivot beginning of last year as my partners and I were starting to go in different directions. I was starting a new company. I said, well, I think there's really something here right now. And I think the next five years presents a really unique opportunity for us uh, to get some great risk adjusted returns in the MHC space. Uh, so we've been busy with that. Uh, currently, we are up to around 500 lots. And in a few weeks, that'll be closer to 750, 800 uh, total lots uh, under management under the new company. So like you said, we're, we're, we've been off to a great start in this space. Uh, we have you know the, the first fund uh, that we launched back in December that we just capped off our first uh, you know fundraise and my first time ever participating in sort of a blind pool uh, fund type of uh, raise or sponsorship rather than a SPV or deal by deal raise. Uh, so that's been a beast of its own, but uh, a lot of good learning lessons and glad to uh, have the first fundraise capped off. Congrats, man. That's uh, that's quite a bit of success uh, in just a few years. I One thing I want to point out, if you're not very familiar with mobile home communities, that is what MHC stands for. Uh, but also, man, multifamily syndication completely changed what I thought my career path was. Um, in commercial real estate, because I didn't know that syndication existed when I first found when I first found it with Bruce Peterson. Mm -hmm. And man, because I, I always thought, you know, hey, you've got to go out, you got to make enough money to buy your own deal. Maybe you find one partner that you guys go in on it together. I never realized that you could just go out and raise capital like that. What was your experience going through uh, just multifamily syndications? Yeah, well, I think the first time I really was able to see what it was like on the other side, so to speak. It was through a mentor, a guy that is still a near and dear friend to me today, Vinny Chopra, who's done 500 million plus in syndications. Uh, again, hopefully he's, if he hasn't been on the show already, hopefully he'll be on the show soon to to share some wisdom with yeah, us. Yeah, we've got to get him on here. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so he was doing multifamily. Now he does some senior living stuff as well, but uh, he was doing, you know, he's at the time when I met him off of a Facebook message, he had done 350 million in syndications, vertically integrated, managed all of his own properties. So he really had worn all the hats of the fundraising side, the investment side, and so on. So when I got the chance to see what his life looked like, um, and it, not saying it was all fun and gravy, but I, I'm saying that there's, uh, it fit my personality type, right? I think you need to know your personality type and what gets you excited. And when I saw that his life was 
was constantly traveling, checking out these different properties, raising boatloads of capital from his investor base, being trusted to do so, and, and then having the responsibility and duty to go out there and operate these properties well and put out the fires that, that do take place uh, in the day-to-day -day management. I just thought it was so exciting, and I thought that was something that I wanted to have a, a piece of. Um, so that was my first exposure in that sense. And then it took me probably 12 months to go out there and find my first deal. And it was just a small 21 unit deal with a couple of partners and a joint venture deal. I felt like, you know, for me, that was a good first deal because I wasn't raising other people's money. It was my own skin in the game. I was getting kind of a taste of what it was like to operate in the space. Um, then I was, a, I was fortunate to link up with a few um, experienced partners, the guys with Rand uh, out of Knoxville, Tennessee, that had an existing portfolio yet had not brought on any investor capital. So that was sort of my value add to the partnership was I was this, you know, young and hungry sweat equity um, partner that was able to go out there and put the systems in place to raise capital that was able to help handle the asset management portion of things because I'd seen what that looked like on larger scale syndications. Um, and they had an existing platform where they had uh, you know, podcast set up, they had uh, in-house management set up, right? So there was some existing infrastructure to build off, which really allowed for us to have a, you know, great synergy as partners to be able to start to go out there and do some deals together. And, you know, the first deal uh, did as a syndication was 132 units uh, that we're actually in process of selling right now that should be a very successful, uh, you know, full cycle deal for us. Um, that first deal was really a uh, a moment you'll never forget, right? I remember even just setting foot on the property, driving, seeing like a true mom and pop ownership group, everything that I was hoping for in the in a first deal finally came to fruition after years of studying and, and hard work. So it was all worth it. <laughs> yeah, it's funny how long it takes you to to get that first deal put together. And then the second one comes like that, right? Because yeah. it's, it's almost like you just have to learn the process. And then once you learn the process, I mean, it just, it gets easier and easier. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's completely an exponential growth process, right? And that's why I remember saying to myself, I left a pretty good paying W-2 position and in my early 20s when most people would have been, you know, feeling like they, they've made it or they're set. I remember leaving this W-2 behind and saying to myself, look, even if it takes me the next eight years just to break into the space, I saw the potential of what the reward can look like for doing even just one or you know a few successful deals. So I said, if I can turn this into my life, and if it takes me five years of sacrifice to be able to do that, it's it's still worth it, right? Even if you make very minimal in the transition period. Yeah, I agree. One thing, one question that I get all the time: Do you think that it was worth it going and working for someone else before going off and doing your own thing, or do you wish that you just dived into investing on your own? It's hard to say. I think it, it's very situational as to who you're talking to, but I am a big proponent for going to work for someone else. Uh, I think that there's a lot to be said about even just the paradigm shift you have of understanding what it looks like on the other side, right? What does successful operations or asset management look like, um, right? What kind of processes are in place? I mean, in, in two three short years of working for someone else that is doing what you're seeking to do. I think that that can radically propel your future in a sense of giving you the perspective needed to go out there and, and do it right. It's, 
it's not that far different than the same reason why, you know, it took me four years to get to the 50 million mark in multifamily, yet we're likely to be back there in a year, year and a half it, doing it again under the new branch in the MH space, right? It's almost like you've seen it, you know what it takes, you know what it looks like, and, and you're sort of collapsing timeframes because you have a better understanding of what goes into that sort of thing. I think that's so true. I have uh, mostly younger, you know, like 16, 17, 18 year old kids reaching out to me on Instagram asking, you know, hey, what should I do? How should I get started? How can I save up money to get going in real estate? And I, I, the answer is always the same thing. It's just go find somebody that's doing what you want to do and work for them. Because one, you're mm-hmm. getting paid to learn, right? Like, look at it that way. Don't look at it as you're getting paid for a job. You're getting paid to learn to do what they're doing. And, you know, how much how much time, energy, and money are you going to save by learning from somebody else's, you know, learning wisdom from somebody else that's been there, done that, or Absolutely. from their mistakes instead of on your and own? You're learning on their dime, right? It's yeah. not uh, it's not your own money at risk. You really have nothing at risk, right? You you can sleep at night pretty easily if you're uh, higher W two, right? The the guy that's got his money at risk, his investors' money at risk, is going to be the one dealing with the the pressure of of performing, right? So uh, I think there's a lot to be said about being on that side as well. Yeah, there's there's so much about the process too that you don't think about, right? You know, like, uh, I mean, how we're supposed to close on a hotel tomorrow and the lender, which is a group out of New York, came back with some unbelievable, like, I mean, borderline illegal request. Today that we're just like, look, we cannot agree to that. It's you, We cannot have that letter signed in the state of Tennessee. It's just not typically how business is done here. And so of course our funding tomorrow got pulled. So hmm. we had to, you know, that's what I've been, that's what I've spent all day on today was, okay, well, we're going to push closing to Monday. I've got another lender already lined up. We're going to close on Monday. We're fine. But if I didn't have the experience of knowing like, Hey, it's always good to have a backup lender that's set up and ready to go oh, yeah. because deals fall through all the time within 24 hours. Uh, I, we probably wouldn't even be having this interview right now because yeah. I'd be scrambling to find money and figuring out <laughs> what the hell I'm going to do with this deal. But yeah. I'm not stressed about it at all because you know you know you know what to do. No, I think that's really important, um, you know, for everyone to hear. I mean, that that is a typical day in the life. There's probably one day a week where you have a crazy fire that you're putting out, and that's all you can deal with the the whole yeah. day. So it's that's the, the craziness that this uh, this brings along with it. But um, I would say that to your point, especially if I'm talking to someone that's younger that has less uh, life experience. Uh, but really anyone at any age, I'd, I'd say just take the ego out of the picture, right? I hate this whole, whole um, I want to be my own boss movement to where there is almost a, a giant segment of the population that has ego getting in the way of them being willing to, to take orders or go learn from someone, right? When I was getting in, I was trying to think, how can I work for free for someone and just put it all on the line just to get around people that have success, I was willing to do anything, you know, for, for free um, to just simply get around the space and, and start to, you know, absorb, um, you know, what it looked like, uh, how to underwrite, how to manage your deals, be around the property management side, right? So I was finding ways to, to add value. Um, and I think that the sense of, you know, you, you really need to get rid of any sense of entitlement to how much you should get paid in your first year, how much equity stake you want on your first deal, um, how much you know, 
you know, all, all of it, right? So, so I think that, you, you know, taking all of that and just the more you can program yourself for delayed gratification, I think you're going to wind up being radically more successful um, down the road because those decisions don't stop, right? I'm sure Tyler is in the same spot I am right now where I'm saying, rather than saying, how much should I pay myself? I'm saying, how many employees should I hire to make sure we're scaling an effective operation, not dropping the ball on anything, right? I'm still exactly making delayed right. gratification um, decisions every day, trying to push my own prize down the road. And instead of paying myself, I'm trying to build our team, trying to scale, trying to give better performance to our investors, right? So so you have to start getting in the habit of that early because there's the whole leaders eat last philosophy, right? Of, you know, you're going to be the last one to get paid if you really want to be the top dog one day. So so I think just, you know, understanding that early on is helpful. Yeah. you. I mean, you really do need to learn that. It's, it's one of the best, you know, patience is a virtue, but it really is one of the best things that we've done. I mean, you know, I could, I could be taking my payday every month, every quarter, every year, but I don't do that because we're building something bigger than that. And, and that's, that's what I'm focused on. You're right. Like we've gone a lot, this time last year, I had three employees. We've got 13 now. So all that I'm doing with all the money that we're making is just hiring a team to build it better next time. Uh, mm-hmm. because we've become that much more efficient. One quote that came to mind, this is one of my favorite quotes of all time when you were talking about, um, you know, you got to get in and learn, is, is from Miles Davis. you got to learn the rules before you can break them. You can't <laughs> just go out there and break the rules if you don't even know what they are, right? And mm-hmm. I think that that's, that's really important to, to sit there and, and ponder because, I mean, that, again, that, that's – why we're both proponents of going and working for somebody else. You got to figure out what they're doing to figure out if you want to do that or do it differently or do it better or improve upon it, you know? Mm-hmm. Big, big time. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's dive into this fund thing, man. How one, can you explain what a fund is? What is mm-hmm. a, a real estate investment fund? Yeah. Well, first off, anyone listening, don't do it right away. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> yeah, don't don't dive into this. Everyone's everyone listening and probably that tuned in based on the title saying, "Oh, I want to just do a fund, right? Why why raise on a deal?" So so that, I need to start there. But the, what a fund is is a fund is a, effectively a a collective pool of investor capital that invests into numerous deals more often than not that are not closed on or in many cases not even identified prior to the funds being committed so to speak right this is speaking broadly but but that's the fund that we're talking about today right this is a 506 the exemption from the sec is the 506c fund which means that you can publicly advertise but you can only bring in accredited investors and accredited investors will then commit capital to the fund and the way that our fund is structured in which I probably would encourage most funds to be structured is a way in which when someone makes a initial commitment to your fund, they're not investing their entire dollar amount into a bank account, right? Um, They're usually putting a very small deposit down. And then as you are closing on deals and you need capital, you effectively draw down on that commitment. So you're pulling down capital over a period of time, anywhere maybe between 12 to 24, I've seen them up to 36 months, right? So you're incrementally drawing down on their capital until their entire capital commitment is put to work. So in our case, we're targeting 
MHC, you know, manufactured home communities, and we are targeting to do roughly six to seven deals, right? So over six to seven capital calls, the entire commitment amount will be drawn down and put to work. The reason we're drawing it down is because generally you are focused on good returns and you have a cash drag when you have money sitting in a bank account. Generally, you're going to have some sort of a preferred return in place, which means that you're accumulating a preferred return with no physical asset to back that preferred return, which is just meaning you as the operator are starting well behind the eight ball and you're not going to have the cash flows to be able to distribute. So um, that's generally how a fund uh, works, where you have a period of time that you open for commitments, say anywhere between six to 18 months is, is a general average window that you might be raising for a fund. Um, and then around month six, you may start your acquisition period where you're going to start looking for deals. If you don't already have them identified, start closing on deals and you may be purchasing deals between month six and month 36, we'll say, right? Those first three, three years of a fund generally are drawing down on the capital, putting it to work. And then, and then the fund itself may last for, I know in our case, it's a 10 year fund, right? And I think that's a pretty standard number of years. So, so you have a, a period of time where you're deploying the capital the first three years, then you're improving all of your projects the next two, three years, and you're holding on to them. And maybe you're doing a capital event somewhere along the way where you do a big refinance event, pull back some initial capital. And then eventually you, you generally will go on to sell them unless you have a unique fund that's an evergreen or something like that. Cool. We're going to have a lot to unpack with that. I'm really excited. Okay. Why did you decide to do a 506C instead of a 506B? If you're not familiar with syndications, those are really the two different types of, well, I guess syndications and funds that you can do according to the SEC. 506C uh, may be marketed, but you can only have accredited investors. And then 506B is a friends and family raise. So that is Anybody, you can have up to 35 unaccredited investors. So, so why did you go with a 506C versus a 506B? When you're doing a fund, you're generally raising for not just a one-off moment in time, right? When I've done my last deal, right? The last deal we, we presented, we raised you know, two and a half million dollars and we had full commitments within 24 hours of the, the full launch. So I, I knew that before the full launch, I was going to market this to all of my uh, existing connections, um, those that are accredited and non-accredited. And generally on a 506B raise, I might pull 25 or 30% of the entire raise from non-accredited investors. So I've had a fair amount actually be from non-accredited. Um, so this isn't about saying, oh, the non-accredited people don't have a lot of capital. They've actually made a pretty significant dent in my previous um, you know, ventures and raises um, in my yeah. investor base. But with the 506C, um, this is more beneficial for a fund because I'm going to be raising, in this case, I raised for seven months, roughly, right? So it was open for you know period of six or seven months where I have to be sending out emails. I have to be occasionally, I didn't do that much on social media, but occasionally making a post about the fund or what's going on there. So it, it just really opens me up to a lot more liability where there's so many instances where it could look like, oh, well, he's selling and promoting these securities to non-accredited investors and um, it, you know, it, I, and they're not pre-existing relationships, right? So um, I just think that the, with the fund, 
I think it's safer. It's a much safer bet to play it completely above board because um, you're going to be raising for months at a time uh, to to have it be exclusively for accredited investors because you might have some referrals, right? Three months in, someone says, hey, I love what the fund's doing. I got some friends that want to invest as well. And now you're able to accept their capital because uh, they're accredited and there's no pre-existing requirement. Yeah, that makes sense. So when... Um when you're going through the drawdown phase, right? Cause obviously you don't want all that capital just sitting in your bank account, burning a hole in your pocket and accumulating interest. When you're going through the drawdown phase, is it common for some investors to say, Hey, I want to, I want my full hundred thousand dollars committed right now. Or do you mm -hmm. take a pro rata share from everybody based on the project? How does that draw? Yeah. Work? Admittedly, that's the most, challenging piece or that's the one piece that I sometimes dislike about a fund um, is is that for some investors it seems frustrating they're saying hey I want to put all my money to work and you're not letting me right <laughs> um, that that is a conversation that I've had to have with a couple investors right um, they make a commitment and I have to say I have to set the expectations that this is going to be drawn down incrementally here's why we do it and generally if you explain it well they usually respect and can appreciate the fact that you're not putting too much cash drag on the fund and it's going to be in their best interest. Um, but you have to, you know, explain that. Well, the, um, uh, the, the issue is the way that you typically draw down is based on a percentage, right? So right now we're about to go into our, um, hopefully second to last total, uh, capital call period. So we're drawing down and getting everyone to roughly a 70% of their total committed capital will be invested and put to work. Um, so the only downside of that is that some of the investors are already at 65%, <laughs> right? So a lot of this means that it's the, the investors that jumped in last minute that have none of their money put to work that are going to be putting in 70% of their money in one swing. And then a lot of the investors that were in on the last call, then they're going from 60 or 65 up to 70. Right. So I'm telling them, hey, if you want to go and put all of your money in right now and just keep it on the sidelines, we'll keep it on the sidelines. We'll watch over it and do the accounting for you, but it won't be accruing a return. Right. So I'm trying to at least make it as convenient as possible. Um, but that is generally how it works, is that you generally want to keep everyone at the same percentage of invested capital as you go through and draw it down. Yeah, I mean, that seems the most fair and <laughs> equitable way of doing that because you can't be telling some guys, yeah, we'll take 100% of your funds now. These guys can keep waiting and you would have some very unhappy um, investors for sure, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. what, uh, what, what are the typical like minimums, maximums that you would have on a fund? Do you have maximums? We don't have a formal maximum. I think we said the maximum was 20% um, uh, or you know, $2 million uh, roughly. Uh, so I think we said that because that would mean they'd have to sign on the loans, right? Yeah. So if someone wanted to do more than that, then we would discuss that and make sure they're okay signing on the loans. Um, but we, we uh, do have a minimum. The minimum is 100000 in this case. And we've been pretty strict to that. Uh, you know, as, as I think when you're raising $9 million, uh, anything less than a hundred doesn't move the needle all that much. One thing that we did in this case was we tiered the, we, we tiered the, uh, commitment amounts to unique classes of shares yeah. to incentivize larger checks. So we did hundred thousand dollars equals an eight pref with a 70, 30 split above the eight pref and then for a hundred or for three hundred thousand dollars 
we did an eight pref with the 7525 above the eight pref. So that really gives everyone a you know an, an opportunity if they're willing to stretch a little bit and go up to the 300 mark, um, they get an opportunity to have a bit better uh, returns than, than they do in the uh, class A shares that we had in place. So um, what, what I found with this, which, which is really interesting, is not just do you have some larger initial commitments, but you have a lot of people that sit there at the 100,000 mark and then they watch you. And then six months later, they say, hey, we really like what you're doing. We really believe what you're doing. We want to get the $300,000 mark. So they'll increase their commitment 200,000 before you're done fundraising. And now you have a lot of these increased commitments over time that sort of snowball, uh, which, which really moved the needle quite a bit for us. That's really neat. I've heard of, of uh, sponsors setting up structures like that in order to incentivize higher uh, investments uh, from the investors. And so let's, let's dive into that a little bit more. I mean, how do you go about underwriting that? How do you really structure that in the deal? Because I would imagine that you have to have that put together in the docs ahead of time of like, hey, is, is, does that create a class A, class B and a class C share? Mm -hmm. How does that work? The way that we have it structured, we just have it as a class A and class B. They have two options, but there's multiple, there's numerous ways to cut in. Every attorney structures things differently. Uh, but in this case, yes, I had it all formally outlined in the documents that this is what that um, structure looks like. And I even did something with our investors from our first deal. We did an SPV. When I say that, I mean special purpose vehicle or deal by deal raise. We did an SPV in our first deal, and just to really reward the people that believed in us the most on that very first deal we did, we said we'd even count their commitment towards that deal towards their total of 300, right? So we specified all of that. So if they had a total of 300 with us on that first deal and collectively with their fund investment, uh, we would we would reward them for that, for being you know the early adopters, so to speak, for our first uh, fund. Um, so I think that that went across well. Um, and you do have discretion on that as a sponsor. If you, if you hit a point where you, you know, if someone's at 250, um, you have some sort of agreement, like there is discretion there where you can have some level of flexibility. Um, but you want to be careful on, you know, how frequently you use that discretion, I think. Do you just have a, a uh, like an underwriting spreadsheet that has waterfall tiers as to how that gets handled? Yeah, that, that was the second part. Yep. The um, way that I do it personally is I just show everyone what the lower of the two looks like. I just I simply just show any of my projections. I'm just showing the 70-30. I'm not showing what the IRR looks like or the cash flows look like for the 75-25 shares. Um, it's just because it's going to vary so much. If we outperform our expectations, then it's going to outperform it by more. And it's just, it's not even worth, I try to keep things simple. I'm a big proponent to trying to keep um, your projections and your investor stuff as simple as possible with simple structures, simple explanations. And, and I think everyone knows, you know, inherently that, that you're not going to perform exactly to your IRR, right? Hopefully we do better than it. Um, but you know, so, so I think that they get the fact that, okay, they're going to get a better deal. They're going to beat whatever that target is. If we hit, uh, exactly on par with our expectations. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Um, what does what, so we've talked about a lot of the pros of a fund, but there are definitely cons as well. So, can you talk about the the bumpers uh, basically that get put on you when you raise a fund like this? Yeah, so we hit on the first one, which is just sometimes a misalignment of interest. If investors want to put all of their money to work, and I'm saying, hey, look, you you have to. 
um, you know, you have to spread it out over numerous deals. And, you know, again, that's trying to flip it and see the opposite side of the coin is that you're going to be more diversified than you are in one deal. But that, that is sometimes a, a, uh, a challenge, at least it's in my head uh, that, I, that exists. Um, and then outside of that, when you do a fund, you really, you have a very, usually a very specific set of parameters that you set for yourself. You should be setting for yourself of like, hey, we're going to be buying manufactured housing communities in the Southeast exclusively. Every single deal is going to um, have some MHC component to it. It can have some RVs, some apartments, something like that, but it has to have an MHC component to it. Um, it, it also generally we're targeting six to seven deals throughout the life of the fund. So we're generally looking for deals that have, you know, maximum of $2 million roughly in equity committed to each specific deal. So if we have a deal uh, raised bigger than that, we're going to have to set up an alternative vehicle to fund the remainder. Uh, we also generally, um, have a timeline where we expect to deploy the, the capital that said, I don't, I don't want to put too much weight on that because. Uh, you don't want to go and buy a deal for the sake of buying a deal. So right. the timeline is is loose, and you want to keep that long. Um, but but generally, you you know you are at the, um, uh, the the mercy of the parameters that you set for yourself. So when you're structuring it up front, you you need to really be disciplined and know that you're going to be disciplined to what you're setting for yourself. And um, you know if the market takes a turn and you're having trouble being able to find something to meet the mold, you're just going to have to be able to set those expectations with investors that, Hey, I know you've made this commitment, but right now things just aren't looking as good for acquisition opportunities. So uh, we're doing the right thing by not buying anything right now. Right. So um, I know that because back in multifamily, I remember talking about doing a fund at a point where I was later very glad that I didn't do it because I had such a dry spell uh, when it came to finding something that I got really excited about. So if we had a fund, we would have just been even more painful, um, I believe, as as sponsors to, uh, during that period. So, you know, right now is a unique time where we think that we have ample deal flow with the MHG space. But, um, you know, I think if you want to remain as nimble and flexible as possible, then deal by deal can oftentimes be the way to do so. Yeah, that makes sense. You don't want to just go out and buy deals for the sake of buying deals. I've seen firms do that. A lot of hedge funds will get into that issue because they raise all of this capital and then all of a sudden they've got one and a half billion dollars they have to deploy. And you start thinking about what you're really going to have to buy in order to go deploy that. I mean, it's, you know, there's certainly pros and cons. Uh, when you put together a fund like this that is, the, that is specifically for mobile home or manufactured home communities, it's, it's funny. I mean, it, you almost want to keep it like narrow enough so that the investors get on board with what your vision is, but general enough, broad enough so that you don't have uh, too narrow of a lane to where you can't find deals. Um, does it preclude you as the fund manager from going out and buying a mobile home community without the fund? It does not. No, there's generally, um, you know, have I done that? No. Um, I made, I made the commitment to myself and to our investors that, I'm not going to go and buy a deal on my side and try to make myself wealthier, you know, while I have this commitment to these fund investors. Right. Um, so I, I said that any deal I touch that's, that would meet the mold of the fund. Um, the, you know, the first 1.5 million of that deal equity wise is going directly to the fund. 
anything above that, we have discretion if we want to bring an SPV on or do any additional investment, something like that. So, so that was sort of a personal choice that I made. Um, but generally, it does not it does not um, restrict you in, in that sense, and it doesn't handcuff you if you know if we found a really attractive apartment deal that didn't meet the funds mold, but we could go raise money and, and do uh, an, an apartment deal that we, we have total flexibility there. And I don't think that would be much of an issue. Um, but just, it's more of, um, you can set the documents to read however you'd like them to, but you have to sort of think deeply about your own moral compass and like what's, what is the right thing. Cause I think when you do a fund, you really have to be putting the fund first for, for the time that you're, um, you know, in the value creation stage. Well, of course. I mean, if you ever want to go out and raise capital from those investors again, you're going to have to prove to them that you're constantly looking out for their best interests, right? Exactly. So now that you have completed your first fund, I mean, looking back, like, let's kind of do an autopsy. What would you have done differently? Uh, mm -hmm. What did you learn that you did not expect? Yeah, so I will, I, I of course, naturally, I tend to do a lot of introspection and, and uh, you know, try to think about these things often so I, I can do it better next go around. Number one, I would have not bought deals as early on as I did. I would have done more of the fundraise before closing on deals, right? It, you should give yourself a six month window and say, all I'm doing is fundraising. And I want to have 75, 80% of my fund committed before our first close. And then it'll make that second you know that second round of raising very easy you'll finish the fund and you'll be done right my fund fortunately the deals we bought we did well on so it made the selling later on down the road easier to say hey look we have proof we have six month operating history we're we're doing well on these deals um so you guys can see it and you're already getting into a more proven vehicle but imagine if those deals didn't go well right obviously never our intention but if they didn't then the early investors that took more risk going into the more blind pool uh, fund are now at a disadvantage because you're not going to hit that number that you hope that you were hoping to hit. They're not going to get the diversification that you promised them and your whole world can crumble, you know, so not to be too dramatic, but that, that could yeah. be, it could get very ugly. So, um, you know, I wouldn't buy deals right away with the fund. I would, I would try to raise the bulk of the money before I go out and buy deals. That's number one. Um, number two is I would have some sort of an incentive structure to not only incentivize higher dollar amounts, but to incentivize earlier dollar, dollar amounts, right? Um, one structure that I've seen other fund operators do, they're raising you know, tens of millions uh, frequently, or they, they offer for the first 5 million that comes in, right? Say we do a $20 million fund, which is probably what we'll target you know, in the one that we launch next year. Um, say the, the first 5 million, Right, maybe they get a 10% discount on the 30% uh, uh, promote that they're paying. Right, so so instead of paying 30%, they pay 27%. Right, then on the next um, five million, instead of paying 27%, they're paying 28.5%. But you can't call it a penalty. Right, you got to call it a reward. Right, it can't be like oh, our later investors get penalized. It's our earlier investors get rewarded. Yeah, it's just an incentive so, for the early ones, yeah. Exactly. So we offer this incentive structure to reward our early investors, and that's going to get the, the needle moving faster because they're going to say, I don't want to miss out on that first $5 million window, so let me make a commitment early on because I believe in these guys and see where they're going. Um, so I'm not going to drag my feet for four months to see what kind of deals they have in the works because I want to get the better promote than the later guys are going to get. So... Those are the two big ones for me is, is um, you know, a discount to reward people for moving quickly and early 
um, and, and also, um, you know, when you're going to start the acquisition pe- period. That's interesting. I never thought about incentivizing investors for coming in even sooner, but I love that. That's something that we're going to have to throw into our repertoire and, uh, and really think about. Um, mm-hmm. When you were setting up your team to put this fund together, I would imagine you didn't have the legal background in setting up funds or anything like that. I mean, going into this process, you've said, I want to start a fund. Who did you surround yourself with and what were they doing? Yeah, so to a degree, you know, again, I, I'm very happy with how things have played out in the last year. And, and uh, you know, I think we've been very fortunate that you know, things have been moving in our favor and we've been working our butts off to make sure that they do. Um, but to a degree, when it was all when it was getting started, we had done the first SPV. We were early as a company to say, hey, let's do a fund. But we felt like we had really good deal flow and we had deals of different shapes and sizes that really did present sort of a perfect storm of uh, to give us a chance to get this diversification and different risk profiles all into one package. So we said, look, let's let's do a fund, um, but not only let's do a fund, but let's let's try to do this as professionally as we can to set the precedent to investors that like we we have third party oversight. We're doing this the right way. We plan to keep doing it the right way uh, and make it sort of an institution as institutional uh, looking and feeling as as possible of a, of an experience, right? So uh, we brought in um, an a, an attorney um, named Simon Ravellis of Ravellis Wahab out of New York. Uh, he drafted our docs. Um, you can certainly look him up and find him. R I V E L E S. Um, there, you know, he's done a ton of different private equity and hedge fund documents of all different sorts, um, and he put together very professional. Uh, set of docs for us out, out of the gates and had a lot of you know unique insight when it comes to how we're going to structure things and things along those lines. Um, we had an outside member that we actually ended up giving a small uh, stake to of the fund to to serve as a mentor with us uh, as well. He had uh, had ran hedge funds in the past and and uh, you know has been around this world quite a bit. So um, you know bringing him on as sort of a mentor slash advisor with vested interest with money in the fund and also his own skin in the game on the on the general partner side was also helpful to get sort of an advisory uh, board set up in, in a sense um, to, to as we kind of hashed through all the legal docs together. Uh, then we went on to go and get a third party fund administrator, um, which is basically a third party group that does all of your capital call. They do all the complex calculations of how to do your distributions, how to do your return of capital, return on capital. They'll send out capital statements to the investors. So we have a third party administrator that handles the, you know, they, they'll make sure all the docs look good. They'll make sure the investors send in all of their, you know, accreditation docs, their their um, IDs and W9s. So they, they handle all of that administrative side of things and having a third party with a group that's managed billions of dollars of capital and is compliant to the, the absolute T it sometimes can add some friction because, you know, again, because of how compliant they are, they're trying to make sure every dollar that comes out of one investor's account is coming out of the right account attached to their name, and they're not breaking any anti-money laundering laws, things like that. So we got a third-party administration group. We use a group called NAV, and then we also went and uh, we we found a um, we found an auditor that for a ten million dollar fund, uh, you know, is is at a 
reasonable uh, price point where it didn't it didn't really have a drag on on the overall returns. So we have third party administrator, we have an auditor, so we're really getting the full <laughs> the full experience in place with uh, you know a lot of uh, outside oversight. But but I think that uh, for investors that that's meaningful because a lot of um, you know the the alternatives or a lot of I think the deals that they they probably see from various indicators are you know that there's there can be things where they don't trust it, the documents haven't been reviewed, they're not really so certain as they're just forming a brand new relationship with someone. So if you're, if you're going to go invest with a complete stranger, um, it just gives you that little bit of extra peace of mind, I think, that there's there's real systems in place here and oversight. So, Yeah, you got to have that. I mean, that's one thing that I tell everybody is like, look, we're governed by the SEC. That's about as big boy as it gets. And you don't want to mess around with that because, you know, the SEC comes in and audits you. You know, you could lose. I mean, if they find you doing anything wrong, you can lose the ability to ever raise capital for anything ever again, which uh, I don't know about you, but that's what I do for a living. <laughs> I don't really want to lose that privilege. Um, I remember I actually spoke to a guy that manages a fund and he said that uh, the one time the SEC knocked on his doorstep and it was something that they had no idea they were even doing wrong and it wasn't anything that was um, was obvious to them. Um, but they weren't getting audited at the time. He said it was it was an eight hundred thousand uh, dollar learning lesson. So uh, that's not money to joke about, right? So so um, I said, well, that's that's you know extremely valuable information, right? So so let's do it by the books. Let's get audited, right? Let's let's do everything we can to to you know keep things above board. Yeah, that's that's smart. Speaking of, of other like syndications and stuff like that, do investors in a fund get the same tax benefits as other real estate investors? They do. Uh, we're in one of the most tax advantages, tax advantaged forms of real estate investing in this asset class. So we've, we have investors that exclusively invest in the fund for the depreciation uh, benefits. So the diversification doesn't make a huge difference, frankly. I mean, I guess you're getting a blended average of numer number of deals rather than uh, just one deal in itself. But but absolutely, we we actually made the conscious decision as a sponsor is we would not take any of the depreciation outside of the money that we've invested personally. We're not going to take any depreciation um, so, so that we can really reward the early investors again. So I think that was another thing that helped uh, early on raise capital in the first one. Interesting. Have you done that before on other projects? Never before. I usually have taken uh, roughly 30% as a, as a general partner because we're real estate professionals by the tax code. So we, we benefit tremendously from that depreciation. But, um, you know, we had, I had a lot of depreciation from previous deals going into this. So I didn't really need it. And it was a great way to reward and further incentivize the incentivize. investors. That makes sense. I love that. That's that's actually pr getting pretty creative there. We've talked about a, a lot of creative strategies for uh, putting together a fund or a syndication or how to structure things with your investors in this episode. That's pretty cool. What uh, yeah. what do you think about crowdfunding? I mean, have you ever considered doing that to 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 fund one of your deals? Crowdfunding in the sense of using one of the online platforms. Yeah, I have not. You know, I, I explored it many years ago when I was still too early to be approved for traditional crowdfunding, right? Um, I didn't have the the number of asset requirement when I initially explored it three or four years ago. Um, so it's something that I put on the back burner at that point, and I, and I really haven't um, revisited it. Um, for me, my general take is that 
bringing together the capital is not that much of an issue uh, right now at this point in time for us. You know, and, and at least on the deal size, this is what we're doing. Um, you know, we we should be able to bring together most of the um, the capital we need. And and I'm similar to you. I'm trying to continue to play the vertically integrated uh, card as much as possible. So I really like the idea of having like true outstanding relationships with the investors that I'm with. And it's not just like this complete transactional thing where there's a website blocking us from getting to know each other. Um, I like the idea of, you know, working and, and, you know, finding ways to reach out to new investors, build relationships with them. And, you know, I, I have plenty of investors on a complete like texting basis now where we, you know, we're constantly texting about deals and things we're doing. And that's, that's really, I think it just makes it uh, more rewarding in a sense. Absolutely. Well, Dylan, this was a great talk on funds. Appreciate you coming on the show, man, and sharing your knowledge. Uh, I mean, look, I, I personally learned a lot. I'm sure the audience did as well. Uh, if anybody wants to get in touch with you, whether that's to invest in your next fund, you said you're raising $20 million next year, or they just want to learn more about mobile home communities or whatever, what's the, how can they find you? So you can visit the Requity Um That's the R E Q U I T Y Group.com. Uh, certainly, uh, you can plug in there. And if you want to fill out the form, we'll add you to our distribution list. Uh, generally, we'd like to set up a call first and we'll add you to our distribution list so you can see offerings, but also you can just see general updates that we'd like to send every. Every month or so, we'll send out just general updates on what we're thinking, where the market's going, things along those lines. So we always like to kind of keep people informed and make it a priority to educate. Um, we'll be launching a podcast here, hopefully in the next 30 days or so. So that'll be called Operators and Allocators. Uh, you'll have uh, the man himself uh, going out in, a, in just a couple of months here. <laughs> and um, yeah, you can visit. Uh, I'm I'm really not super active on LinkedIn or uh, on social media outside of LinkedIn at this moment. So um, generally, if you if you want to catch me on social media, just just plug in on on LinkedIn or shoot me an email at Dylan at the Awesome. Dylan, thanks again, man. Thanks so much. My pleasure.